Hiya, Duncan Green here with the latest roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. I'm just in London for a week in between a lovely holiday in Scotland, walking in the hills and then spending a week hoovering up cultural activity in Edinburgh, which was just at the French Festival, which I totally recommend if you're in the UK in August. Absolutely brilliant. And now uh, tomorrow I'm heading off to Panama for, which I've never been to before, for a week uh, uh, on the training course I'm doing, I'm giving on influencing for UN, NGO uh, and others uh, folk at national level. It's called GELI, the Global Executive Leadership Initiative. We've done three of these so far. Um, this is the fourth and they've been huge fun. And I've talked about them quite a lot on the blog and I dare say I'll be talking more. Um, so I'm in this brief in, interregnum, I'm catching up on blogs and doing this podcast. Um, <clears throat> so while I was away, I put up the last three of my uh, top student blogs and vlogs. I must say, uh, looking at them, I can see that I'm overmarking or under uh, vlogs or undermarking blogs. Um, the videos just seem a lot of fun and maybe it's because I'm so bad at them that I give them higher marks when I get them from my students. But anyway, I might have to adjust this next year. Each of them comes with the full campaign strategies, uh, links to those. And I guess why you should read them, uh, I would say, is not just for in themselves because they're really interesting, but also just to get a sense of where the next gen of um, activism is going and what kind of topics interest them. So the first up was uh, Alexia Fajeru, um, who uh, went with a, uh, a, a topic which really interests a lot of my students who are mainly female, it has to be said, tackling period poverty in France. She got a good campaign strategy and she did a great uh, vlog to accompany it. Then the next one was from Jenna Thoretz, Plane to Train UK, incentivizing and promoting domestic train travel. And that's on her campaign to get people to switch from planes to trains on internal travel in the UK. Um, I have to say, if I'd posted this after my Edinburgh trip, I might have been a bit more snarky because my trains were cancelled in both directions. But hey, the general principle is absolutely correct from a climate change point of view. But my, but the, we do have some problems with the hard rail network. The third post of the week was from Jonathan Swinney and he went old school. He did a written blog. Um, and it's about elephants in Botswana, and I liked it. It was very deft, very light, very good, good blogging style. When I think about elephants, my mind wanders off to Dumbo, a fictional elephant loved by millions around the world. In 1941, some people thought we would never see him again, but he came back and we did. His legacy lives on. However, unfortunately, unlike Dumbo, many elephants in Botswana are never going to come, be coming back. This is because they're instead being killed ruthlessly all across the country. If the killing of these mammals continues in the future, elephants will be something of the past. Are you going to stand by and let that happen? No, of course not. I hope that this blog informs you on why you should even bother caring in the first place and the ways that you can help. So sit back, relax, and then take action. Great style. The elephant ancestry spans over 55 million years. They've been on our planet for a very long time. But now their existence is being threatened by humans, leading to the African savannah elephant being put on the IUCN red list. In simple terms, this basically means they're at risk of not existing on planet Earth. So why does all this matter? 
Ensuring that elephants are protected and not killed is beneficial for multiple reasons. The species get to live and thrive whilst also creating a much better future for Botswana and its people. The Save Our Elephants campaign includes forward-thinking rural communities, conservationists, wildlife biologists and NGOs. They are working towards protecting elephants and doing their best to get loud across the country. It has the ultimate aim of protecting elephant life and promoting other ways to manage the high elephant numbers rather than killing them. I should have said at the outset that my students for the, the assignment have to invent a campaign and then uh, do the strategy for that campaign and then blog about it. So I, I don't know whether the SOE campaign exists. In a way, it doesn't matter. Jonathan has come up with a strategy and this is the blog of, uh, of that strategy. Ditto for um, uh, Alexia and Jenna. What are the opportunities? People visiting elephants is a huge source of revenue in Botswana with tourists paying thousands of dollars to see these mammals in real life. But with the country deciding to make it easier to kill elephants, it will lead to fewer tourists visiting and, threat and threaten the jobs and livelihoods of local people from rural communities. To fix this, making it illegal to kill elephants in any circumstances and using alternative methods to manage high elephant numbers is the way forward. Doing this will mean the industry and livelihoods are sustained whilst also protecting the lives of elephants. I mean, who would want to see a baby elephant killed in cold blood? Look over to the right to a little photo. It's adorable. So what are the choices? Botswana has come to a fork in the road and there are some possible future scenarios. One, make an effort to protect elephants, which will then help the tourism sector and sustain the livelihoods of many locals in the country. Or two, do nothing about protecting elephants, push them closer to extinction and put the livelihoods of thousands of people in all parts of Botswana at threat. How can you help? You've got to show your support and help us get loud. This can be done by sharing the SOE campaign, Save Our Elephants, and a picture of yourself holding an A4 size sheet of paper with Save Our Elephants written on it. You don't have to include your face. So that's been, yeah, they've been, they got a, a campaign on digital, they got a lecture on digital marketing. So this is a part of that. Let's take control of this situation and make a difference. And that was, Jonathan's was the last of the uh, summer student blogs. And then I came back and wheeled straight into some much more ponderous, you know, heavy, heavy duty stuff with a book review of a book which has been very, very present in my timeline. Gambling on Development by Stefan Durkin. Now, people who've read the blog for a few years will remember that Stefan triggered an enormous fight on my blog, which became known as Sausage Fest. I won't go into that for reasons of time, but Google it or just search it on the blog. You will find out what it's about. It was um, it was a, it was a intense few days. Um, recently, more recently, he's been promoting the book in a very weird way. He takes photos of the book next to his cat in various settings. Uh, unusual promotional uh, strategy, but it seems to be working. He's on all sorts of he's getting brilliant reviews uh, and on, is on all sorts of reading lists. But I'm prob I'm guessing it's not because of the cat photos. But who knows? Anyway, he's a big name. I think that's probably the reason. He was a former chief economist at DFID. He's a professor at Oxford and until recently a policy advisor to the UK Foreign Secretary during that whole transition from DFID to the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, which was very messy, very painful. But unfortunately, he's not doing a kiss and tell. So he's an insider. Uh, he's in the rooms when a lot of those big decisions were being taken, but he's usually pretty discreet. Even so, I think it's still a fascinating account. So I started off predisposed to scepticism, 
but it ended up being about 80% won over. Why skeptical? Because I've read too many books and papers where economists say, well, I've just discovered this thing called politics. Let me explain it to you. But Stefan goes well beyond econo-splaining, making a good faith effort to bring together economics and politics into a, co into a coherent whole. Happily, most of the book is not about aid. We'll get to that later. But a discussion of the nature of the elite bargain in the countries he knows best and why and how some elite bargains evolve into development bargains that lead to economic and developmental takeoff. And for Durkin, this is about how the big men, mainly, divide up power and the spoils of rule, and when or how they move to a more long-term vision, submitting to institutions, the rule of law and the needs of the wider economy, rather than just grabbing what they can and heading for the nearest airport. His big idea, while hardly new, is important. A development bargain is a specific form of elite bargain, one of many possible ones. It's an agreement among those with power that growth and development should be pursued, even if they disagree over policy details. Countries with a development bargain tend to have three features in common. The politics of the bargain are real and credible, not just some vague official statement or announcement. Two, the capabilities of the state are used to achieve the goals of the bargain, but importantly, the state avoids doing more than it can handle. And three, the state possesses a political and technical ability to learn from mistakes and correct course. How do such development bargains come about? Well, through crises, the Rwandan genocide, the Ethiopian famine, legitimacy-seeking behaviour by those in power, and enough stability to ensure elites are able and willing to take a long-term view and wait around to reap the rewards of investment and growth. Now, what he does do is get very quickly into a country typology, which is quirky, slightly chaotic, not always convincing, but a lot of fun. So his, his country types include hippos, ears of the formal state are visible just above the waterline, but most of what matters, informal power, patronage networks, etc., are below the water and out of sight. Examples, Sierra Leone or Malawi. Hippos scrambling out of the river and revealing the whole body by becoming more formalised in terms of the state, Kenya, Uganda, Ghana. Tigerfish, which are just big fish gobbling up little fish, uh, much more predatory, Nigeria, Congo. Hyenas, scavengers fighting over the scraps, South Sudan, Afghanistan. Tiger cubs, Bangladesh, that's referring to the kind of um, East Asian tigers. Lions, ruthless concentrating power behind a development bargain. Rwanda, Ethiopia, at least until recently, dragons and tigers, China, Vietnam, and a peacock, India, a spindly bird underneath the big feathers. So, I mean, it's kind of fun, you know. Um, I liked his nuance, his lack of academic jargon, his focus on the economy and the private sector. So when he travels, he always makes a point of seeking out some business people from Somaliland to South Africa, and he sits down with them and says, What's it like trying to trying to make money here? What's it like trying to do business? He's got a good eye for politics and he asks good questions. But, and there's always a but, two things grated. Firstly, it's a pretty elitist book. The people in all these countries really make an, the actual people rarely make an appearance, except as grateful recipients of the development bargain or very occasionally holding decision makers to account. I wanted a bit more Marxism, more tides in the affairs of men, big norm shifts and political currents to complement this focus on transactional politics at the top. 
And second, while he does his best to say that elites have agency, that not everything is predetermined by history and structure, he struggles to explain how such agency arises. Part of the problem is he stops digging too soon, settling for a description of the differences between countries and contexts and falling short in terms of explanations. And this, I think, he slightly reverts to type. He is an economist. And for economists, economics is difficult, mathy stuff for grown-ups. Politics is just common sense. A couple of conversations with insiders. Paul Collier is the past master of this kind of thing. Aha. Uh -huh. So in the aid section, he's, for example, he proposes asking a simple question to assess aid spending in a country. How much more likely will it be that a development bargain emerges or will be strengthened by the proposed aid programme? In what world is that simple? Anyway, which brings us to his reflections on what this understanding of development means for aid agencies like those he has advised. I like this final section a lot. A real awareness of the limitations of what aid can achieve and of the primary role of national and local politics in shaping that. To this he had some sensible thoughts on the role of aid in delivering global public goods on climate change, trade, tax evasion and the arms trade. He argues that aid should mainly work with the grain where there is a development bargain, helping those elites deliver. Where such a bargain appears to be emerging, though nothing is ever certain in these moments, donors should be willing to gamble, hence the title, gambling on development. Backing bits of emerging development bargains, pockets of state effectiveness, committed leaders and so on. But he comes unstuck where, to be honest, the aid sector always comes unstuck. What to do in the hyena and tigerfish states or aka the fragile and conflict-affected contexts. He has some sensible words on what not to do. Don't give up and revert to countries with functioning states. But then he rather reverts to technical assistance and the standard aid repertoire of cash transfers, vaccinations, etc. Fair enough. Everyone struggles to find ways to help poor people and communities in countries with, with predatory states. But I feel that his focus on state elites perhaps blinds him to some alternative approaches that are worth trying working with public authorities that are not the state, faith groups, civil society organisations or traditional customary leaders, where it might be possible to get things done even while presidents and leaders are busy looting. But it's a brilliant book, uh, well written, very important and thoroughly recommended. Next we had a guest post from Peter Evans, who says his words, he has left the UK government in order to become more irritating. And I'll just read it out uh, in his words. In December 2021, I left the UK government after 20 years as a governance advisor and then research commissioner and became director of the U4 Anti-Corruption Resource Centre in Norway. After 20 years of being a flexpert, new word to me, spread thinly across multiple issues, I wanted to zero in on corruption because tackling it as a means is a means to many bigger ends. It's a major constraint but not the only governance constraint, to delivering development outcomes, changing real lives and maximising bangs for bucks in health, education, climate change, everything. The anti-corruption community is a specialised niche, but my heart is in sectors. I would rather help others to understand corruption in your sector, use evidence and invest your own time and budget to do something about it. U4 has been doing exactly this for 20 years and links to its work on health, natural resources and climate, and some of its main areas of work. And then let's get up, talk about dirty politics. I feel the same about getting to grips with the real politics in any sector. 
including broadcasting the value of practical pol political economy research, which he was very involved with in DFID. I tried to persuade sector people to understand and tackle political barriers to change and invest their time and budgets in this, not see politics as someone else's problem or bemoan lack of political will. Bad politics and corruption are, of course, connected and ideally are addressed together. Is doing this expensive? Not really, if compared with the budgets wasted if corruption and bad politics go unchecked. A calculation by the ACE programme at, uh, at SOAS, the University of London, estimated the cost of researching politically viable anti-corruption strategies in the garment sector in Bangladesh was £130,000. And that's for a sector which, in which donor investment was $1 billion. So well worth it. Did my arguments work in DFID? Not really, though ACE's sector research had good traction and the importance of politics in development has been boosted by the new book by ex-DFID chief economist Stefan Durkin. See what I mean? It's everywhere. Talking money, how much of my sector budget should I spend on this stuff, he asks. Well, this idea that every sector should grip its own corruption risks and politics and invest in anti-corruption leads to awkward questions that donors, civil servants and politicians try to avoid. If you have a sector or programme budget of $1,000, how much is likely to be lost to corruption? And how much should you allocate to understanding and tackling corruption? This is not just about aid. Whether you're a government ministry, World Bank, NGO or donor, corruption losses are hard to estimate, sensitive to discuss and no, no one likes doing either. But for reference, a World Bank paper in 2020 estimated an implied leakage rate in aid of 7.5%. That sounds way low to me. But anyway, there's a link there to the paper if people want to chase it up. So this is not just about money, uh, about money wasted and outcomes denied, not just accounting losses. Leaky sector budgets are a corruption accelerant and feed systemic corruption, refueling bad politics incentivizing policy capture and resistance to reform by those that benefit from the messy status quo. As an example, the red lines in the sketch, and then he's got some sketches from his daughter, attempt to capture systemic corruption flows in a typical education sector. Leaking funds at multiple levels sustain power relations, compromise many in the sector who are forced to pay up or suffer, and so perpetuate impunity. No one is truly innocent, so no one can speak out and resistance to regulation and reform. And impunity for corruption probably means impunity for other things such as sexual exploitation. Leaks across borders feed into illicit financial flows and perpetuate the global systems that enable these. Unint unintended consequences writ super large. So corruption is even nastier than you thought. So let's talk about anti-corruption budgets, he says. The idea of putting a number or percentage on the amount to spend on anti-corruption in a sector is difficult and uncomfortable. It has been easier to say that anti-corruption is mainstreamed without a budget. But as with gender, mainstreaming risks evaporation. Everybody's problem is nobody's problem. And we fall back on generical, generic technical corruption safeguards and ignore the politics. Another donor strategy is to say, as well as this sector programme in Country X, we also fund accountability, governance, transparency, civil society, at country level, this begs the question, what is the right budget for this work? And also, does that governance stuff actually address corruption risks and bad politics in this sector and within the timescale of this sector programme? 
As a donor, I often doubted it. Of course, earmarking sector budgets smacks of conditionality, and conditionality has generally been found to be ineffective. Aid effectiveness purists dislike it for good reasons. Those enmeshed in the political economy of aid giving are probably more resigned to it. But regardless, I think the question is still worth chewing on. What would be the right amount to spend on anti-corruption in any big sector? Health, education, climate, finance. We may not end up with a perfect number, but hope to stimulate this irritating but important debate in your sector. Are you doing and spending enough? And then the last uh, post came from Shruti Patel, who got in touch with me and just read a book that she wanted to, to, to um, uh, post about. Um, she teaches in Geneva and it's called Using Evidence, What Can We Learn From A Book About Parenting? And this, my kids have grown up and I now just sit back and, you know, um, take the credit for all their amazing achievements and their wonderful jobs and the, the, they're just wonderful kids. Um, but this book is written for people who are on the front line, you know, still getting through those difficult early years. And so it really took me back. But this is a book written by Emily Oster, an economist, mother of two, and one of Time magazine's 100 most influential people who wants parenting to be treated like a profession. How? By getting parents to make data-driven decisions about their kids, which I have to say sounds horrible, but there we go. Let's go with the post. In her latest book, The Family Firm, she translates de decades of research on how key decisions, e.g. on after-school care or screen time exposure, affect outcomes like test scores and obesity into bottom-line advice for parents. Then, and this is the tough part, she gives parents a framework for integrating that advice into their own lives. Spot any parallels to what we in the development world often aspire to? Just like many of us, Oster is on a quest to make better use of research and evidence. What might we take away from her approach? Well, it turns out policymakers and parents of young children have similar challenges. Every major decision comes with a trade-off. Uncertainties abound and the stakes tend to be high. Most of the time, there's never enough evidence because of course, every context, brackets family, is different. To top it off, operational realities, paychecks, in-laws and politics, arguing with a four-year-old, frequently trump good intentions. Amidst the mayhem, conditions for ill-considered, convenient and gut instinct decisions flourish. I actually trust gut instinct decisions, but that's just me. According to Oster, that's to be avoided. Engaging with evidence, tips from a seasoned mum. The goal, she says, is to use evidence as a tool for steering mums and dads away from parenting on the fly. Guilty, she says, uh, uh, Shooty says. Advocates of evidence-informed policy strive for something similar. So I've drawn out five lessons from the book on how to package evidence and get decision makers to use it. One, don't sit on the fence, provide a judgment. Ever come across an inconclusive synthesis paper or meta-analysis? Oster too. But this doesn't paralyze her efforts. Instead, she puts a spotlight on conflicting results, bias methods and weak data, and then taking all of that into account, she makes a clear and succinct judgment. For instance, on the question of whether parents should work or stay at home, should they have the choice, to improve test scores, she acknowledges ambiguity in the research, but ends with, having said this, I think the volume of evidence points to two conclusions. And then she doesn't tell us the conclusions, which is really annoying. The key words, I think, are often missing in the development world. Perhaps that's because generalizations are vulnerable to criticism. But without them, we're bound to get stuck. Hoster's sweeping statements motivate research, 
uh, readers to find out more. If we want more engagement with evidence, we need to give people a reason to ask why, how, or oh really? Making judgments is a great way to do that. You provoke people into responding. Use evidence on correlation. Nowadays, evidence is synonymous with causality. But Oster shows that there's also valuable information in studies that look at patterns between variables. Correlations have predictive value because they reveal what could happen if a certain action is taken, useful for risk management. An example from the book is the relationship between parents working outside of the home and childhood obesity. Oster finds that although research doesn't identify causality, many studies find a, co a correlation between parents working and childhood obesity. Interesting, but not particularly helpful. Rather, it's the finding within these correlation studies that what children do after school is key in linking these variables together. This in turn helps identify the right question, i.e. do they buy a bag of chips? This in turn helps identify the right question to ask, i.e. not whether a one parent should work or not, but how after school hours should be handled. Third, focus on big questions, not geography. Oster focuses on a handful of parenting dilemmas that are more or less universal. When's the right time for my kid to get a phone? Well, I'm not sure that's entirely universal, but anyway. How important are family meals? Am I using the right strategies for optimal nutrition? These are compelling questions that grab attention and interest, and interest independent of where people live or how much they earn. As a result, even though Oster bases most of her conclusions on research done in the US, this doesn't dilute their relevance to other places. That's because of the relevance of the questions themselves, but also because she's careful to explain why similar resu results can or cannot be expected elsewhere. For example, she uses data on physical activity in Swiss and Scandinavian schools to make recommendations about how American parents should think about their kids' exposure to physical education. Highlight gaps in evidence. Despite the fact that close to 50% of all peer-reviewed economic research is on the US, Oster consistently finds good evidence hard to come by. But rather than lamenting this, as we in the development world tend to, she specifies where evidence is missing, why it's important, and what need it would fill. And despite gaping holes in evidence, she reasons her way to making the existing research useful. By leaning heavily on two and three above, she shows how having part of the picture, blurry as it may be, is better than having no picture at all. When there's no good evidence, she puts a boundary around the uncertainty, sketching out all possible outcomes so parents can look out for signals that reveal which of these is emerging. Fifth, provide a framework for using the evidence. Oster's book provides answers to weighty questions in the form of nano summaries of the research, which on their own aren't very helpful, but that's okay because much of the book's value um, lies in Oster's approach to embracing the messiness of evidence while fully appreciating its importance. She enables readers to do the same by recommending a four-step process. Framing the question so you're specific about the actual decision that needs to be made. Fact-finding so you're sure you've looked and discussed the relevant evidence. Three, making a final decision. And last but crucially, planning a follow-up to review the decision. Oster's book shows how such frameworks can ease the burden of decision-making because it's often the process that matters, not the answers per se. She tells parents there is no answer, but there is still fact-finding to do. And this is just as applicable to policymakers. All in all, this no-nonsense guide to parenting is also a great example of how to translate research into practice. Well, reading that, you know, I, I, I was thinking, you know, in my experience, we actually had a division of labour on this. I just winged it. 
uh, and my wife read all the books, Pat Cathy. And um, maybe between us, we did an Oster. But yeah, there's no way I was going to go, go back, determine my research question about what to feed my kids and then go and read a pile of papers about it. But Cathy did. So maybe between us, we were OK. Anyway, uh, it's too late now. They're all grown up and left home. But uh, if you're in this mess, good luck to you and have a good weekend. Bye.